You're listening to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. I want to say thanks to our underwriter, Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting Faith and Family on Worldwide KFUO. Find out more information about them on our website, kfuo.org. They're in the sponsor section. Look for the CUW logo there. You can find more information. Well, not too long ago, I attended the Matthew Bulfin Education Conference in Houston, Texas. It was a joint education conference for the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the American College of Pediatricians. Uh, an education conference for physicians who who uh, who affirm life, who are uh, pro-life and uh, and and willing to um, to take a stand uh, against uh, practices that are solely rooted in in cultural trends rather than in science and uh, in and in truth so uh, we had just a I had a wonderful time listening to the presenters and meeting so many uh, life-affirming physicians and uh, we're going to talk with one of those uh, physicians today a returning guest to faith and family Miriam Grossman MD she's a uh, dr. Grossman is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and one of the presenters at the Matthew Bulfin education conference in Houston recently welcome back to faith and family, Dr. Grossman. Thank you, Andy. Great to be back. I, uh, I always enjoy talking with you uh, about children and uh, what we know about them, especially what uh, science teaches us about children and uh, how that um, what you presented on at the Matthew Bulfin Education Conference, the the biology of attachment, that relationship, uh, that bond between mother and child, and and how significant that is, and and how some current trends in um, in America and, and in other parts of the world as well um, are are really pointing us away from the the truth and what the science teaches us. Let's talk about uh, why you you chose this topic, why this topic has been so important to you, uh, and and you've been doing research in this area of um, the 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 science of the the mother child bond. Well, uh, I I believe that I first became more interested. <clears throat> sorry, in this. I mean, as a child psychiatrist, of course, I'm you know I'm I'm going to be. Mm-hmm very curious about the bonds between uh, children and their caretakers. Um, But especially so now that our culture is asking us to believe some uh, radical new ideas about the family. Um, Marriage, of course, has been redefined, and uh, the importance of of biological bonds between um, parents and children uh, has been uh, is being denied. We're being told that all a child needs to develop and and do well and and thrive as a human being is love, uh, and that biological bonds, um, genetic bonds between a child and his mother and father, uh, are all of that is being redefined and in a big way denied. Because if we're arguing, we're being asked to believe that two women or two men can raise children um, and, and, uh, together with no, with no uh, detriment to the children, that there's no ideal family structure, um, it's, it's worth looking into that. And, and I believe that's what spurred me on 
to uh, to look further into the the science of uh, mother and infant bonding. Would you say there is any legitimate science or research that su- that that truly supports this current popular understanding of of family and that uh, that the only thing a, a child needs is is love and it can um, and that a, the fam there is no ideal that there is no family structure is there have you come across any legitimate research that really proves that in fact no the 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 hard science out there not the soft sciences um, being done maybe in you know the fields of sociology or uh, even <clears throat> even in psychology because uh, many, as I've written in my books um, and on my website, on my blog, um, many professional organizations have been uh, have been hijacked and are no longer um, purely interested in uh, in the truth. In fact, I'm sad to say that often the truth doesn't even doesn't even count for much. The hard science, and when I speak about hard science, I mean um, what's going on uh, under the microscope, uh, molecularly, um, in the brain, neuroscience, uh, what we can see on, on CAT scans. Um, in, in that area, there's, there's really no question that the... Uh, the ideal for children and certainly for newborn infants is uh, to stay with the woman that gave birth um, to the child. Because as, I, as you, I guess you heard when I spoke in Houston, the bond between mother and infant starts way before birth. And that by the time a child is born... Um, the mother is deeply bonded to the child, and the child is bonded to the mother. Before we get, uh, the, and I think this is important, the, this bond between mother and child is important. Before we get uh, too far into that, what do you think the, the misconceptions about uh, children, family, and, and, and uh, this bond between parents and the, the importance of it, what do you think these misconceptions lead to in children and in family and society at large, these misconceptions that our culture embraces uh, about um, the importance of that mother-child bond? Well, they are leading people to believe, and especially young people to believe, that when it comes to um, choosing a romantic partner and starting a family, that it really doesn't make any difference if one chooses um, a member of the same sex or not. Um, That one can, uh, you know, like I said earlier, that two men, two women um, can start a family in, in you know, w- with some, um, how should we call it, <laughs> minor or major um, interventions that need to be made because obviously a, a child, a, a new life cannot be created without sperm and egg um, coming together. Now, um, young people are being led to believe that 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 with all the reproductive uh, assisted reproductive technologies that we have um, in vitro fertilization surrogacy um, and 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 other techniques 
that, well, you know, one can just choose one of those techniques and, you know, have your family that way and that it really doesn't make a difference. Um, and this simply is not, is not valid on, on many levels. But what I focused on um, in my talk and what I'd like to focus on right now is that unique bond that occurs during pregnancy um, between the mother and, of course, these days you have to define mother because there can be, in some situations, you know, they get more and more complicated. We can have now um, an egg donor. Uh, we can have a sperm donor. And then you can have the... Uh, new life, the embryo created in a laboratory and um, implanted in the uterus of a woman who, who is going to be a surrogate. And then at the end of the nine months of surrogacy, the child thus created can be handed over to a completely different set of people. Um, the, the, what we're calling now the, the social parents or you know the, the terminology is is tricky, and I don't I don't want to get caught up in all that. Sure. What does what does all this mean for children ultimately? It means a lot of confusion. It means uh, you know fr- from the the people that are now speaking up, who are uh, ad- adults who were conceived through uh, sperm donation. That's uh, you know we haven't had egg donation that long. But many, many of the kids that were created through sperm donation are speaking up, and uh, they're, they're angry. They feel that, you know, they, they've been, um, a, a, a half of their biological heritage. It, it's not only the father in this case. It's, you have to remember it's the father's entire family. So it's not just... Um, one person that that the child of a of a sperm donor is is can might be yearning for and, and at least have you know questions about who this person was what are, what does he look like who was he am I like him am I not like him um, but it but it but it's an entire family is grandparents aunts uncles cousins and if you go online um, there's there's a lot of sites right now that have been created by children of sperm donors. Um, and there's one especially that I would point your audience to, and it's called anonymousus.com. The word anonymous, then the word us.com. And these are, um, th- this is a, a, a website created by a woman um, who, who was the result of of I think a, a sperm donation, and she, um, as an adult, uh, created this website, a, a place where people could come. Not only kids of sperm donors, but anyone uh, who has who has been involved on either end of assisted reproductive techniques, including surrogacy, the, the donor, the sperm donors themselves, egg donors. Um, kids also there, I think that there are people there who have been involved with, who have been adopted or adoptees. Anyway, it's a, it's a place to anonymously share your stories. Um, and it's worthwhile, uh, for your listeners to 
check out that site uh, because you get a sense of the uh, confusion that and the anger, the the loss um, that pervades these people's lives. Not every single person. Mm-hmm. There are people writing in that's, that say, you know, I was conceived in this way and I'm absolutely fine with it. And I never think about my sperm donor father and, you know, I don't even want to talk about it. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going as far as to say that every single person uh, is going to have these issues, but, but that doesn't matter. Uh, uh, we... we you know, we always have to be thinking of the of the more vulnerable among us, and we have to be considering, you know, what could be the results of our of our actions. And more and more, as these people do speak up, as well as um, women who have been egg donors, uh, women who have been surrogates, you know, the, the news is just full of uh, of stories of of surrogates who change their mind during the pregnancy. There's a case right now in California of a woman who uh, was a surrogate and she gave birth to uh, triplets recently and she, in, in the midst of the surrogacy, had a change of mind. And this all makes sense. I want to just get back to the science because during, during pregnancy, a woman's brain changes dramatically. The hormones of pregnancy actually cause physical changes in the in the architecture of her brain and she she uh gets what we call a the mater- a maternal brain a mommy brain <laughs> a brain that is that is um focused on uh the care uh, the caretaking and the welfare of her children and this is true in all mammals we've studied it um in a number of different mammals and I want to just mention one thing that also I, I brought up in Houston, and that is that in, in 18 states in our country, we have laws regarding uh, newborn puppies and their mothers. And the laws on the book state that you cannot remove a puppy from his mother until he is six weeks old. It's considered inhumane to the puppy uh, as well as to the mother. And yet we have states such as California with ab- absolutely no, um, n- n- no control, no regulations over surrogacy, gestational surrogacy, in which um, a, a woman volunteers to basically rent out her uterus for nine months, and then the uh, child or children are removed uh, immediately after birth without the mother even having the right to see them to see the child, um, and this is not considered inhumane. So, you know, there's, there's just really, there, we're, we're really doing some foolish things here, and uh, it, the children are, are going to pay the highest price. So what I hear you saying is that during, during the pregnancy, there are biological things happening. There are changes happening, not only in the fetus, not only in the child, but also in the mother as well, that affect the relationship between the, the mother and the child she's carrying. Oh, absolutely. She is bonded. She, she you know, from the, usually in the vast majority of women, um, from the moment um, she finds out that, or let's, let's put it this way, from, from the moment a woman finds out that she's 
pregnant. And certainly at, at the first um, uh, sign of movement of the baby, a woman's life is, is just does a complete 180. And, uh, you know, you're, you're just, you, your focus is, is, is shifted. Your, your, your emotional focus, your physical focus, you have, you're focused on how your body is changing and feeling. You're focused on the fact that you have a new life inside of you. Um, you're, you're thinking about it. You're wondering. You ascribe a personality to the baby based on different things that you, that you may feel. And, There, there's, there's no denying this, and this shift in focus in the woman, um, it indicates um, that a bond has formed, a relationship has formed. It's not just an idea. It's not just something abstract. It's, a, 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 it's as much a part of you and as real as you are. How does, let's talk first about the mother, how does pregnancy and delivery affect the mother biologically when it comes to uh, relationship and bond to this child? Well, there, you know, there's actually so much to talk about that there, you know, let me just, <laughs> let, let me just um, mention two things. One, as I said a moment ago, is that the brain actually changes. And um, the areas that are of the brain that are um, more uh, related to Um, maternal behavior, caretaking, multitasking, um, being, being sensitive to the infant, um, uh, develop more, the, the cells become more numerous, and that part of the brain uh, gets, gets larger and more active. But then there's also the hormones that are circulating, and primarily the hormone oxytocin has dramatic, powerful effects. Oxytocin as your listeners probably know, is the hormone, the, the cuddling hormone, the hormone of love and attachment and, and trust. And when that hormone um, is, is higher, um, it, it causes us to feel bonded with the person that, that we're with. In other words, you know, I mean, in, in the pregnant woman, it's causing a bond um, to occur with, with her fetus. But, for example, it's also uh, released during intimate behavior, sexual behavior, and oxytocin causes us to become attached to the person that we are with at that time. Oxytocin actually also changes the brain, and I mean, it has an, it has an impact on important areas of the brain having to do with, with trust and, and attachment And um, this has been written about extensively. Now, oxytocin is never as high as it is in uh, labor and delivery. Um, it's just it, it's zooming up, um, you know, at very high levels. And that is because the brain releases it. I mean, it has multiple uh, functions. Hormones don't only have one function. Oxytocin's primary function during labor and delivery, of course, is to cause the uterus to contract and expel the infant. But isn't it fascinating that the same hormone that is responsible for that also causes the mother to be very bonded and um, attached to the infant? So this, 
this creates this uh, this bond in the mother. What about the child? Does the child experience uh, the oxytocin and the the effects of it? Uh, how does the child have an increase of oxytocin in in their body? Well, we know that the child um, is going to be getting oxytocin through uh, the mother's milk and through the process of nursing, cuddling, and being held. I don't know of research that's done, you know, on, on, I don't know of research done on the infant, you know, during or after birth because, you know, it would require certain complicated Mm -hmm. studies to determine what the oxytocin levels are in the child. But one could assume that because going through the birth canal, of course, is, um, you know, is, the child has to squeeze through there. And um, you could say that that is like a very prolonged hug. And we know that long hugs do cause uh, release of oxytocin. So, you know, it's, it's not too uh, irrational, I don't think, to suggest that the birth process also is going to increase the child's oxytocin. But it's really not even necessary to say that. I mean, the child is already... Um, bonded to the mother for for other reasons. For example, um, uh, one of the primary ways that an infant experiences the world is through his sense of smell. His vision is not so good in the beginning, in the first few weeks, but his sense of smell is is acute, is is very good. Um, It develops in utero. um, And so by the time he's born, um, smell is very important to him. Now, if you put a, a, a newly born baby on his mother's belly, he will crawl up toward her breast. And the reason for that is that um, he recognizes the odors that, are, that, are, that, that the mom has. That she, you see, a woman during pregnancy develops unique uh, sense, unique, she develops, she begins to produce um, chemicals that she never produced before, and these chemicals have a unique scent. It's different for each woman. Um, the, the scent is, um, is released from under her arms and around her nipples, and um, the child can smell uh, the mom and crawls up in that direction toward her. Now, the question is, how does a, a newborn already recognize his mother's scent? You'd think it would take at least a few hours or a few days, wouldn't you? I, I would think it would take some time, certainly, to learn that, yes. So what happens is we find that these chemicals that are, that are carrying the mother's unique scent are also in the amniotic fluid, the the fluid that surrounds the baby that the baby is growing in for nine months. So, in fact, the child has been smelling and tasting the mom's unique scent during all those months, well, let's say during the the last six months um, of of uh, of the pregnancy because it takes a few months for the taste buds and the... um, the, the olfactory system, the, the, you know, being able to recognize odors for that to develop in the, in the, in the, in the fetus. 
So for many months now, the child has been, has been floating, you could say, in, in, surrounded by the mom's scent. So we shouldn't be surprised that when he's born, he recognizes it, he crawls toward it. And in fact, these fascinating have, studies have been done with newborns in which um, uh, they've taken cotton and soaked it in the mom's amniotic fluid so that the cotton has, carries that scent. Mm-hmm. And when they put it in front of the uh, infant's face, the, the child cries less. It's comforting. The scent of the mother, even if she's not there, even if her warmth, her voice is not there, um, her milk, just her scent alone is comforting to the infant. And this is just one of so, so many um, scientific facts that point us in the direction of, of, of arguing that <clears throat> you know, keeping the child with his, with his biological mother after birth is best for the child. Am I saying that if you remove the child for some reason, um, you know, because life is not perfect and sometimes kids do need to be adopted or what have you, that that child is going to be forever scarred? That's not what I'm saying. That is not my argument. But we're talking about an ideal, and the ideal... Um, without a question, is for the infant to stay with his mother. Uh, to, to intentionally, you know, in surrogacy, there is the, the planned, intentional uh, creation of a child who is going to be removed from the woman that gives birth to him at once. And I'm arguing that that is against the best interests of the child. We're talking with Dr. Miriam Grossman. She's a child and adolescent psychiatrist and a presenter at the recent Matthew Bolfin Education Conference of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the American College of Pediatricians. We need to take a break. When we come back from that break, we'll continue our conversation on the biology of attachment, that relationship between mother and child. You're listening to Faith and Family on Worldwide KFUO. Concordia University, Mequon, Wisconsin, overlooks the beautiful shoreline of Lake Michigan. This serene main campus of CUW is just 15 miles north of Milwaukee with all its vibrant cultural attractions. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, students living by the motto of inspiration and action can choose from 69 undergraduate majors, 14 master degree programs, and doctorates in pharmacy, physical therapy, and nursing practice. For more information or to take a virtual tour, visit cuw.edu. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. The most dangerous place for a black baby to be in New York City isn't in a crack house or a violence-torn part of the city. The most dangerous place for a black baby in New York City is in the womb. The Big Apple aborts more black babies than those born alive. About half of all Latino babies conceived in New York are aborted. This matches our research of Planned Parenthood targeting minority neighborhoods for abortion. 
Nearly 80% of their surgical abortion mills are within walking distance of blacks and Latinos. This is consistent with the philosophy of Planned Parenthood's founder, Margaret Sanger, who called minorities human weeds. If you'd like to see the dramatic visual research, visit lifeissues.org and click on the microphone icon. For more information, visit our website at lifeissues.org. And stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. I'm Gary Duncan, the director of KFUO. Donors who wish to give Thrive and Choice dollars to Worldwide KFUO must renew before March 31st. If you haven't given your choice dollars to a charity, would you please prayerfully consider a gift to Worldwide KFUO? There's information on the Thrivent website at thrivent.com slash choice. Or you can ask them how to do this at 1-800-847-4836. And thank you for your support of Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Do you know how your savings and investments are being used by your commercial financial institution? Hi, this is Rich Robertson, President and CEO of the Lutheran Church Extension Fund. We all need to be comfortable with how our money is being used. Recent market jumps really brought that back home for many of us. That's why investing with LCEF is so attractive for so many LCMS members and organizations. Visit lcef.org or call us at 800-843-5233. I know my son likes to gamble, but over the years, it's turned into a real problem. He and his wife are really struggling financially because of it. They've had to ask me for money before. I want to ask my friends for advice, but I'm afraid they'll think badly of him. He's a good man. He's a good father. He just has a problem. There must be something I can do for him. Problem gambling doesn't just affect the gambler. Call 888-BETS-OFF for free help. Sponsored by the Missouri Alliance to Curb Problem Gambling. listening to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. Today we're talking about the biology of attachment, that mother-child bond with Miriam Grossman, MD. She's a child and adolescent psychiatrist and a recent presenter at the Matthew Bolfin Education Conference in Houston, Texas. Before we went to break, Dr. Grossman, we were talking about the biology of this uh, attachment and some of the uh, the research, some of the the, uh, the tests, or the experiments, if you will, that were done uh, to to really nail down this uh, this attachment, this this bond between mother and child. We were talking about amniotic fluid and how that was used, uh, just placed on cotton and how that calmed crying children uh, when they smelled the amniotic fluid of their biological mother, uh, that uh, the mother who carried them and how that calmed them. But I, I'd also like to talk about um, the, the, the sound, the, the sounds that, that children or that, that uh, the, the baby hears in the womb, particularly in the mother's voice and what significance that has as well. Yes, this is really fascinating. Um, well, there's very little light that enters the uterus. I mean, it's, it's, it's dark in there, <laughs> but, but there's a lot of sound. Um, the baby hears um, his mom's voice, her heartbeat, um, the sound of her gastrointestinal system gurgling along. Um, and in studies that have been done on fetuses that are at the beginning of the ninth month, there, there are 36 weeks, so a few weeks before delivery, um, we've found that a, a, the baby recognizes his mother's voice in five seconds. Um, and the way that that's been discovered is that we can 
monitor the baby's um, activity, the baby's movement, and the baby's heart rate. And when he hears his mother's voice, his heart rate and activity both decrease. And that, um, I mean, not, not to a dangerous degree, just, just a little bit. <clears throat> and, and that decrease indicates that um, the baby is, is, is orienting to the voice. He's listening to it. And then just a few hours after birth, we know that newborns also prefer their biological mother's voice over the voice of another female. And not only that, but they prefer the mother's native language. The, the, the baby can actually tell the difference uh, between the sounds of different languages. So one is more familiar, mm-hmm. and the others would, would be unfamiliar or less familiar. So he prefers the sound of his mother's voice, and also uh, the language that she speaks. Now, um, there's, a, there's just a, an amazing example of this that I read in a book that I want your listeners to know about called Jephthah's Daughters. It's, it's a remarkable book by Robert Oscar Lopez. And I don't know, Andy, if you've ever had him on, but I would urge you to um, get Professor Lopez on the show. He is a professor of English literature um, at the University of California and a outspoken uh, critic of uh, the redefinition of marriage. He was raised by two women, and he is speaking up in a, in a most powerful and effective way right now. So he was one of the editors of this book called Jephthah's Daughters, Innocent Casualties in the War for Family Equality. And he tells the story of a woman who was adopted at birth. And she had a wonderful adoptive family. um, But there was always a question in her mind about her very earliest memory. Her earliest memory was of beautiful music. And her adoptive family... Uh, were not musical. They had many other wonderful qualities, but they weren't musicians. They weren't particularly into listening to music, and so she could never quite understand it. When she was 30 years old, she found her birth mother. Her birth mother was a singer, and what she was remembering was the sound of her mother singing while she was still in her womb. That's fascinating. Yes, it is. I didn't realize that we, we had memories as early as, as life in the womb. We certainly do. And something that uh, I could bring up that I'm sure you'll be interested in that I did not discuss at the meeting was a patient of mine uh, that, that I had in the past who uh, was the... Uh, she survived uh, an abortion, she was supposed to have been aborted. Uh, well, she was aborted, but she refused to die. And she cried and cried and cried. And finally, the clinic um, called an ambulance, and she was taken to the hospital. And she lived, and she was adopted. Well, this child was brought to me. I'm a child psychiatrist because she had a 
she had nightmares of uh, being of drowning and of crying, and she was phobic of of, of the water. She would not go into the water, and uh, this is you know, probably the most fascinating patient that I ever had because it's clear proof that uh, she had memories of that abortion, uh, not on a conscious level. She didn't know her history whatsoever. She knew she was adopted, but she had no idea that she was aborted. Wow. So it wasn't until later that she learned that she was aborted. Well, uh, as of today, I don't know if she was ever told that and I wouldn't I wouldn't advise her mother to tell her that. Mm-hmm. Her- I don't believe that's something that she needs to know. Um I mean but but the interesting thing is that she clearly did have uh on some uh subconscious level a memory of 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 that event. Mm. So anyway, getting back to uh, the bond that develops between the mother and the child, um, that science is indicating that it, it's a unique attachment and it's a powerful attachment and it begins before birth. So we see this in, uh, as you pointed out, the, the, the biology, the, uh, the amniotic fluid that plays a significant role in that, oxytocin plays a significant role in it, and, and even sound plays a significant role in, uh, in this bond. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't want to minimize the role of fathers here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that, it, you know, it, it's different. It's, it's a different kind of relationship, and it develops um, more so, you know, a little bit later in life, not during pregnancy so much for the infant. Although the infant can, can recognize the father's voice as well if he hears it often during the pregnancy. Um, so, so that's a great thing. But I don't mean in this mm-hmm. entire discussion to be denying or minimizing in, in any sense whatsoever the, the, the critical role of fathers uh, you know, to, to their babies and to their children. It's just that right now we're talking about pregnancy. In your research, have you, have you ever come across any, uh, any research on the biology in, in terms of the, the father-child bond? There is. There's biology showing that the, uh, you know, children are play, uh, mothers and fathers, as everyone knows, who, who, who hasn't been swept away and with all the political correctness that we're dealing with now, um, uh, p- play with their children in very different ways. Mm-hmm. And the, the rough and tumble type of play that usually is, uh, done by fathers um, ha- has a unique effect on the child and on the child's self-confidence and and uh, uh, I don't I don't know that we in in humans we don't have the kind of evidence that we do in 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 mammals other mammals that so we have rats evidence in rats that um, that the brain you know, I'm I'm treading a little bit on thin ice here because I looked at this a long time ago, so I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure of what I'm about to say. So I'd rather leave it leave it because uh, you know people will then sure. 
get me on it. I don't recall if it was in rats or in another mammal in which it was shown that there were brain changes related to the relationship with the father versus no relationship with the father. Um, but we don't need, in my opinion, these, these studies. They're nice to have, but if we just use our common sense and look around us, um, uh, you know, most of the men that end up in jail uh, were not, you know, never knew their fathers or, or their fathers disappeared when they were young. I mean, this is a, a vast uh, sociological problem that, that we're not facing. Um, fathers are needed. Fathers are so important. Uh, a child needs a mother and a father. That's what it boils down to. Right, right, right. Yes, the the, the father absence crisis in America is certainly an important topic, a topic for uh, another day and, and certainly significant. The the biology of attachment, the, the mother-child bond certainly is, is significant, and, and I appreciate all the, the, the research that you've shared with us to, to help us understand this. When it comes to teaching children about this as they're growing, and developing, um, you know, we have we have lots of children's books about any topic under the sun. Uh, and one book that you brought up in the conversation or in the presentation at the conference was uh, a classic. Uh, was it? Who is my? Are you my mother? <laughs> yes, uh, the classic book that I'm sure most of your listeners are aware of. Um, are you my mother? It's a cute little story about a little bird who can't find his mother because she flies up off to find him a worm um, when, he, when he's finally born and crawls out of his shell. She's not there because she, she left to get him some food. But in any case, yeah, I speak about that book because um, it's so politically incorrect, but it is so valid, so true. And it, uh, you know, in the story, the little chick runs around um, and 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 all he wants is to find his mother. Um, he comes across a a chicken, a, a dog, a, an airplane, and he keeps asking um, everyone that he meets. You know, are you my mother? Are you my mother? Are you my mother? And then finally, at the end, he says, "I know that I have my mother. I I know I do, and I want her." Um, so you know, there's a happy ending. Um, of the book, and, and kids love it. I know that my grandchildren love the book, um, but I believe it's only a matter of time until this, uh, this beloved classic is, is banned because it will be considered uh, hate speech. I mean, it, 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 it's based on, um, you know, these controversial ideas, the currently controversial anyway, that, number one, everyone has a mother. Um, there's some... Some uh, programs, sex education programs, uh, that actually instruct children that, that not everyone has a mother and a father. Uh, so, so a book like this, uh, you know, what are you going to do with it? It actually says everyone has a mother. It also, um, th- this book, one of its messages is that everyone, especially a baby, has a unique and primal connection to his mother and that separation from his mother may lead to uh, wondering where she is and, you know, eventually searching for her. So these are all ideas that the current, um, you know, our culture right now 
has been overtaken by these by 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 radical uh, leftist uh, ideas, uh, people who who whose goal is to uh, engineer a, a different a different kind of society, and uh, they are largely succeeding. So these truths about mothers and about fathers and about the ideal uh, family in, in which to be raised, these ideas uh, are, are controversial. And uh, as we all know, when you, the, you know, just controversial things are just, are just squashed and, and they can be categorized as hate speech. So uh, I, I, am, I am concerned about that. Sure. Every every child has a biological mother, a biological father, and ideally, that child would uh, would be in you know raised in the in the arms and love and care of the that biological mother and father. Precisely. Now, there there it's, are it's the ideal. Sure. Life is not perfect. Terrible things happen. Not everyone has this opportunity. There are deaths. There are wars. There's divorce. There's all sorts of horrible things happen. I'm not. Mm-hmm. You know, but I'm those not are the exception. On the moon. Those are the exception, though, right? The the norm, the ideal, is is hopefully also the the norm. But in our culture, we've made the exception the rule. Correct. We are taking the exceptions, and we are uh, being told that that th- there's no ideal one way or the other. That it's just all a level playing field, and 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 all these things don't. You know, biology, biology doesn't matter, essentially. And, you know, it's pretty, it's, it's wild, because as, we, as, as the science develops almost on a daily basis, we have more and more scientific facts that go in the other direction that, that support the, the opposite idea, that, that biology matters very, very much. And your chromosomes, your genetic endowment, um, you know, your genome, I mean, the, these, these things are important. They're related to uh, so much of who we are and, and, and how we behave and the illnesses we get and how we respond to medication and treatment. Uh, you know, genetics is important. Biology is important. Have we taken, have we made the exception, the, the rule, made it into the, the norm because we want to excuse ourselves from any responsibility and and excuse ourselves so that uh, we can then make choices regarding a child's circumstances, regarding a child's uh, life, basically, and, and how they're raised, based on our own preferences, our own desires, our own wishes. That's freak. I believe that that does happen uh quite a lot unfortunately that that people are buying this notion that it's all the same to the child that the child only needs love um and that therefore i um i'm you know i can fulfill my dreams and it'll be all the same to the child um you know my heart goes out to couples who uh are dealing with either infertility or um, same-sex couples uh, who have difficult decisions to make. Um, Most of us want children. Most of us want to experience parenthood. But we, 
the welfare of the child has to come first. Um, I heard someone put it very well. They said, I don't remember who it was, um, oh, that parenthood is all about self-sacrifice. You know, it's just you sacrifice your sleep, you sacrifice your paycheck, you sacrifice your time. (laughs) So that is what parenthood is. For those people, and I I know this, this might sound kind of harsh, but maybe, you know, you need to experience that self-sacrifice and not create a child in that way if you know that the child really may suffer as a result. You wrote a book uh, as well. We were talking about uh, children's books just a little bit ago, and you wrote a a children's book as well, The Black and White Puppy, A Story About the Biology of Love. That's right. Tell us about this book. Well, this is a book uh, that gathers together and presents to young kids some of the fabulous science that we just spoke about, um, about mothers and infants, but it does so in the context of a cute little bedtime story about um, a little boy and his dog who has puppies. And he has all sorts of questions. This is not about sex. This is not about how the puppies came to be. It is about why the puppies need to stay with their mother until they're a bit older. And the dad um, and mom explain to the little boy um, some of these unique um, biological facts about moms and their newborns and how they need each other and they need to stay close. Um, And I also say there that uh, one of the big differences between puppies and children is that puppies, even though they, they have a dad, they don't really need their dad. But children need their mom and their dad. You you uh, used the, uh, the, a good example, just like you did in our conversation today, explaining the amniotic fluid. I love how you explain that uh, in, in the story, uh, how the the puppies uh, the, in the in the amniotic fluid um, can smell whatever the what the mother has been eating. That's correct. We didn't even <laughs> yeah, we didn't even get into that. That the that kids prefer. Uh, the foods that that their moms uh, ate while they were pregnant with them, because they recall the uh, the taste of, I mean, strong foods such as garlic and so on. The the child um, uh, recalls the the taste of the the garlic and the amniotic fluid. Um, but basically, I just wanted to thank because uh, because my book, the um, Black and White Puppy: A Story About the Biology of Love, um, the illustrations are just so beautiful, mm-hmm. and um, the illustrations were done by a wonderful artist in Michigan whose name is Laurel Dugan, and I want to thank her publicly for that. She's just um, she just put together some beautiful illustrations. It's my first children's book, and I and I learned just how important illustrations are. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, in children's books, the the illustrations are, are certainly important, especially when you're trying to sit down and read it with a two and a half year old. 
We'll give it another try. He, he saw the first two pages of the pictures, and, and we'll keep working on it. But it, I, <laughs> yeah, I certainly, I, I appreciated it as a parent the the, the explanations that that happen in conversation. Uh, how the little boy wants to hold the the puppies, wants to hold the little black and white puppy, and and mom and dad explain that uh, how important it is for that puppy to stay with the mom until it's time. And uh, I certainly appreciated that. Uh, and and I think it'll come in very handy in in future conversations with our son. Oh, good. Yeah, when he's a little older, I would say sure. probably, you know, three to six or three to seven, something like that. And by the way, people can find that book um, either on my website, which is uh, miriamgrossmanmd.com. It's M-I-R-I-A-M-G-R-O-S-S-M-A-N-M-D.com, or, and also on Amazon. And it's in Spanish as well. Very good. Yeah, it's a handy little story, a uh, little children, uh, a nice children's book for for teaching about the uh, well, the the biology of love, and and I appreciate the, how how you point out that there are feelings that that come about um, through this this being close. That you talk about cuddling in the in the story and how that's important uh, for children to have that time with their parents and what that means, saying "I love you" without even using words. Uh, great book, uh, check it out, and we'll provide a link to. Uh, to your website as well today with the archive of the program. Dr. Grossman, I, I, I've enjoyed our conversation. I always enjoy learning about uh, biology and uh, what that means in our relationships as well. Thanks for being our guest today on Faith and Family. Thank you, Andy. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Our guest today, Dr. Miriam Grossman, a child and adolescent psychology presenter at the Matthew Bolfin Education Conference of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetrician and Gynecologists and the American College of Pediatricians this past uh, February in Houston. Uh, I'm sure we'll have have more chances to talk with her in the future. Again, we'll provide a link to her website, Miriam Grossman, MD. You can check it out uh, on the archive of today's program on our website, kfuo.org. Coming up in just a little bit, Thy Strong Word with Pastor Whedon. You're listening to Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news for over 90 years. Listen to Faith and Family Monday through Friday at this time. Faith and Family is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is needed for Faith and Family to continue. Our address is 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can contact us on the web and download Faith and Family at KFUO.org. Worldwide KFUO, on the air, online, and on demand.